This is Monday Morning QB, April 19th, 2021. I'm Askia Muhammad. Today on the show, ethical police and equitable policing. The showdown over a union at Amazon, a congressional victory for supporters of reparations. Is there a racial bias in facial recognition technology? And an exit from the Afghanistan quagmire? All that and more, stay with us. Last spring and summer, there seemed to be a rash of incidents involving white civilians, mostly women, needlessly calling the police with what seemed like petty complaints about black men. This year, things have escalated and black men have been harassed and even ended up dead at the hands of police for misdemeanor offenses. An air freshener on the mirror, a hard-to-see temporary license tag, a veteran cop firing a service weapon instead of a taser. The complaints have gone on now for decades, leading to calls for new kinds of emergency responses, according to Hans Manos, Vice President of Law Enforcement at the Center for Policing Equity. The reason, he says, is simple. People are fed up. We are not, we're constantly hearing about young men being killed, and young women, frankly, being killed by the police. So we're, we're, we're increasingly, that, that loss of legitimacy that the police have lost shows up in these micro-interactions. And so I think we're seeing is folks who are telling police officers, get out of my face or leave me alone. Or no, I'm not going to comply with your unlawful stop. And things do escalate from there because police need or feel they need control. Is there an alternative to having police armed respond to these low-level criminal, if you want to call them that, or even traffic incidents, what is the alternative? There are, there are certainly alternatives. Uh, as I referenced, um, we, uh, in Ithaca, New York, there is a plan to reimagine their public safety apparatus and bring in a lot more, uh, or a new unit of unsworn or non-sworn public safety employees that are unarmed. And their job would be to respond to all the, the calls of service that they identify in their city. So that's, that's what's important, that each community is given empowered to make decisions about how they want public safety to look. But I'll, I'll point out that right now, what we have in terms of public safety is a 911 system. So right, we call 911 and we say, I'm experiencing problem, number, problem X. That 911 dispatcher has what's in between three and four options. If you're sick, a, par- a paramedic, if your house is on fire or there's some kind of other emergency that uh, a, a firefighter can fix, they'll give you a firefighter. And in some jurisdictions, they actually do have uh, animal control. And for everything else, it's the police. So many jurisdictions around the country are saying, well, let's think about what else we can provide. So we're seeing a, a lot of co-responder models pop up. We're seeing a lot of um, alternate responder models pop up, and we'll see how they how they how they pan out. But those are sending trained mental health clinicians to deal with problems that are mental health oriented. 
Um, and finally, in areas where homelessness, for instance, is a problem, building up those other apparatus, the, the, the other social service safety nets, where there's a homeless outreach team that meets with somebody or finds somebody before 911 is called to their nuisance. And so there's a lot, and, and we can do a lot more swimming upstream in terms of schools, in terms of investments in communities, in, in terms of investments in mental health and, and public health that could also stem the need for folks to resort to a 911 system that, that will most likely dispatch a police officer. So there's some, there's, a, there's some acute issues, like actually reassigning police officers. There's a whole bunch of macro upstream issues that we can start to approach to in, increase public safety. Your Center for Policing Equity has put together a toolkit for equitable public safety. What's in that toolkit? Mm -hmm. Well, the toolkit highlights that, as I said, public safety is not one size fits all, right? Everyone needs to understand what in their community works. It, it also highlights some of the typical barriers that people are going are to encounter, right? One of those I think is probably most important is that there's not necessarily agreement on what the problems are. People don't experience police misconduct or police um, abuse equitably. Some folks are very happy with the way things are. Uh, predominantly white folks and in, in, in white neighborhoods. But other folks, black folks in particular, and, and are, less, are less satisfied with public safety. So in a city or in a, in a in a township, that can be a murky conversation to say this is what public safety should look like. So that so that's that that's probably the overarching issue that people need to get over. How do we agree on a problem? The guidebook guides folks into into finding ways to access and analyze their police data without the assistance of CPE. As I mentioned, there's 18,000 police departments around the country. And so the guidebook is really intended to assist those folks who are on the ground in municipalities to help themselves uh, and analyze their, their police data and their police disparities to try and solve problems in, in collaboration with their government. You said that some communities are pleased with the status quo, mainly white communities, pleased with the way policing goes. And it brings to mind the idea that those people take joy at the suffering that they witness black people endure. Is that a, a likelihood and that, that, that feeling, that sense of joy at the suffering and of, of black people gets into people who, be, who become police? Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if it's joy, but I, I'll say this. It sure seems like joy. Um, when, and, and social media has, has laid this pretty bare. Um, we see folks who are blaming and criminalizing behavior at a level that is unheard of. Um, there are folks who will watch a video and come away with something completely different than what other people are looking at. <clears throat> We see folks who will say, well, that's what he gets for running in relation to um, about their rights. Now, 
and, and, and in relation to many other um, black and brown men who have been killed because they weren't perfect. And that's really where we see this, right? Where folks can, if anyone can be blamed at all for their behavior, for, for their for their own for their own murder, they will blame them. And so, yeah, I think a lot of the misunderstanding, the miseducation of our country around race and racism, uh, around the role of police and racism, um, leads people to have a knee jerk reaction that suggests the police are right, the police operate in a just fashion and the police should be trusted and, and any action they take, they should get a higher benefit of the doubt and should be believed and trusted. And you know what? That might be their experience. However, the, the, the problem is that it's just certainly not the experience of m- many other people in this country and the inability to accept that or to, think critically around that to to understand that you might have privileges based on the color of your skin um, and the rejection of that has been a problem in this country that, that extends beyond policing. Uh, it extends to education and general accomplishment that uh, that is most, most mostly bare when we talk about disparities in justice system. Hans Menos. Vice President of Law Enforcement at the Center for Policing Equity. Thank you very much for talking with us. Well, thank you for reaching out. Last week, several Minneapolis police officers took the stand against Derek Chauvin. The year before this, 14 officers in that department signed an open letter claiming that Chauvin, quote, failed as a human and stripped George Floyd of his dignity and life. For many, this seemed to signify a new age of courageous officers who are now willing to call out their errant co-workers. This was a supposed breaking of the blue wall of silence, but according to the experiences and testimonies of many black officers, this blue wall may not be broken so easily. Amara Evering reports. The St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department continues to struggle with issues of racialized violence. However, these issues aren't just revealed in interactions between police and citizens. It's also embedded in its own department. Various black officers have come forward in St. Louis about their experiences being beaten, shot, assaulted, and harassed by their own co-workers. I spoke to St. Louis-based officer Shanette Hall about this issue of racism that seems to permeate all levels of law enforcement. That even when Black officers are still doing their job, that blue <laughs> line, right, that color blue that police often like to identify with, there is no blue when it comes to a sense of Black officer sometimes. You're still Black at the end of the day, and many people are going to see you still as a Black man and a Black woman, whether you are a police officer or not. And being Black first, in the context of the St. Louis Police Department, has proven to be a very dangerous thing. There was here recently a case of Luther Hall. Luther Hall was a police officer who was doing undercover work during different protests. And Luther Hall was doing his job, doing what it is that he was supposed to do. And he was stopped, not as a police officer, even though he was undercover, he was stopped as a Black man. Luther Hall was beat. He has had several surgeries, all kinds of things done to his body. And he was simply beat because he was a Black man. All of those things happened by his co-workers. Luther Hall was brutally beaten 
by three of his co-workers, who are all white. They collectively beat Hall in a manner that he described himself as, quote, like Rodney King. And mind you, Hall was also there with another undercover officer who's white but remained unharmed. Despite evidence of what looked like clear racialized violence, no convictions were returned last month in the trial of the three officers. But Hall is not the only officer who's been assaulted by his white colleagues in St. Louis. We have had Officer Milton Green, who was simply doing his job off duty, not even while he was on duty, attempting to help his comrades catch a alleged suspect at the time. Milton Green was helping his comrades. He was then shot, even though he wasn't still in his full uniform. He had his badge and displayed his identification. Still shot by another white male police officer who only saw him initially as a black male and did not identify or did not see his badge that he had in his hand. But it wasn't just the shooting of Green or his lasting injuries from that incident. It was also his treatment by the department after the fact. Though it's typical for St. Louis police officers who have been injured in the line of duty to have their pension claims heard and granted, this was not the case for Green, who was left struggling financially after the shooting because of uncovered medical bills. The St. Louis Police Officers Association, a predominantly white police union in the city, was relatively indifferent in the cases of Luther Hall and Milton Green. Officer Shanette Hall addressed this issue of unaccountability in police unions. The narrative that is definitely out there is that police unions are more of a hindrance than they are of one that would encourage accountability. Now, all police unions are not like that. However, many of them are, and those are the ones that we see. Police unions have remained a powerful force within police departments, politics, and courtrooms alike. The bargaining power of police unions is so powerful that they've been able to overturn the firing of officers time and time again with brutal histories of violence. The immense power of these unions have made some officers feel invincible and others completely unprotected. But... Officer Shanette Hall is a part of another kind of police union. This union is called the Ethical Society of Police. The Ethical Society of Police is an association that was formed in 1972 in St. Louis City Police Department. And it was formed by African-American police officers to address race-based discrimination within the department and also within the communities. This union was created to place morality over blind loyalty to a system that is often quick to abuse and marginalize Black officers and Black citizens alike. But, unlike other police unions, the Ethical Society of Police isn't listened to as much as other influential, mostly white, police unions. Know that there are officers out here that are speaking up, but they are actively having issues with being heard, if you will. There are organizations out here like the Ethical Society of Police, like NABLEO, um, like the NBPA, like the Black Police Experience. There are organizations that are definitely speaking up and wanting to see change for people, especially the people who are being affected by bad policing the most. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon for an officer to be punished or ostracized for speaking out. This culture of suppressing accountability has created what some call, quote, a blue wall, where officers remain silent in the face of misconduct, often permitting incidents of racialized violence and profiling. 
many times there are signs and there are warnings before a highly criticized event comes about. And for whatever reason, police departments are choosing not to act. People are choosing not to complain. People are choosing not to tell their supervisors or our commanders, hey, what this person is doing right now, this is wrong. Sometimes what we see police departments living a life of is living a life of willful blindness. They know things are occurring. They feel things occurring under their administration. However, if they never choose to turn and look directly at those things, then they always can have a sense of plausible deniability. And at the end, they can say, well, oh my gosh, we didn't know. No, that's not fair. That's absolutely not fair. There are times and warning signs where people can be sent to their department under their Department of Public Safety on a state entity, and these officers can have their licenses investigated. And this was the case for Derek Chauvin. Chauvin had a history of misconduct with 18 complaints on his official record. And though officers may not have come forward before the killing of George Floyd, they were certainly at the trial testifying against Chauvin in what many saw as a historic moment. However, Officer Hall says that though other officers held Chauvin accountable, this doesn't mean that this blue wall of silence is now completely broken. It's easier for people to join a crowd when they see the masses calling for something. What is hard and what is a true test of character is when we have officers from Los Angeles, if we have officers from Columbus, if we have officers from Miami, from any other city that you can think of around the country, when they condemn the actions of officers in their own police department in their backyard, Obviously, we see this highly publicized event that just occurred, the murder of George Floyd. And so it's easy for people to say, yes, that was wrong. That was wrong. But it's harder for someone when their character is truly tested, when they're in the midst of a situation occurring right in front of them, and then they need to act right then and there. Though many of us hope that this may usher in a new wave of police accountability, there is still a long way to go. Even Black officers have not been able to get justice for the abuse that they've endured from their co-workers. But Officer Hall says she still has hope in her profession, and this hope comes from her dedication to her oath. At the end of the day, we have to remember why we are here. Our oath is we take an oath to literally protect and to serve. It doesn't say protect and serve some people. It doesn't say protect and serve the rich. And, And until we can begin to realize that we are lacking empathy, we are lacking an understanding of how police reform, and we are lacking a certain sense of cultural competency to be able to effectively communicate with people. Until we can begin to understand those things, we will continuously stay in the same vicious cycle that we are seeing examples of in the news and the media today. Officer Shanette Hall, second vice president for the Ethical Society of Police. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Amara Evering. A black man in Michigan who was falsely accused of shoplifting is suing the Detroit Police Department. The lawsuit was filed Tuesday by the University of Michigan's Law School Civil Rights Litigation Initiative, the ACLU, and the ACLU of Michigan on behalf of Farmington Hills resident Robert Williams. The federal lawsuit says Williams' arrest was based on faulty facial recognition technology that is racially biased. Sue Goodwin reports. In the introduction to the complaint filed last week on behalf of Robert Williams, his lawyers make this statement, quote, 
This wrongful arrest and imprisonment case exemplifies the grave harm caused by the misuse of and reliance upon facial recognition technology. Plaintiff Robert Williams was falsely arrested because, as Detroit police officers later admitted, the computer got it wrong and erroneously identified him as the suspect in a watch theft investigation. Unquote. Deborah Wan is a student attorney at the University of Michigan Civil Rights Litigation Initiative and one of the attorneys representing Mr. Williams. She explains what happened on March 24, 2020. So our client, Mr. Robert Williams, is a father of two young daughters. He was arrested by police on his front lawn in front of his children and wife, all because a computer got it wrong. He was thrown into jail for 30 hours. During that time, he was never once told what he was being held in jail for. What he wasn't being told is that he had been identified as the prime suspect in a 2018 shoplifting theft of almost $4,000 in Shinola watches. Robert Williams was nowhere near the store at the time of the theft, but that didn't matter. Using facial recognition technology, police identified a possible match between an expired driver's license photo of Williams and a dimly lit and blurry image from the store's surveillance camera footage. And that goes to the heart of the ACLU's case. We know that the technology is dangerous. We know it is racially biased, and the racial bias is deeply embedded in the tool. We know that Black individuals are up to 100 times more likely to be misidentified by facial recognition systems than white men. The federal government's own studies confirm that the technology works best on white men's faces and less accurately on people of color. And this is deeply problematic. So for police departments across the country to continue deploying a technology that is widely documented to be so racially biased and flawed is frankly disturbing. And I think it's really time for us as a society to take a stand against this kind of automated oppression. According to the lawsuit, Williams spent 30 hours in a dirty, overcrowded holding cell where he was forced to sleep on bare concrete. It took some time, but when the police realized they got it wrong, Mr. Williams was released. Prosecutors dropped the charges less than two weeks later, arguing that officers had relied on insufficient evidence. But as Deborah Wan explains, that hardly means the harm caused by the arrest is over. The harm that this has caused the Williams family has been been quite grave. His two young daughters are traumatized by the incident. When they see police, they wonder, are they here to take daddy away? And of course, Mr. Williams is a black man in America, uh, already once falsely accused, arrested, and imprisoned, has had to live with this heightened fear and stress. And so our lawsuit is seeking justice for the Williams family. The lawsuit states that Mr. Williams' arrest was a violation of his Fourth Amendment right to be free of unlawful seizures and that it was in violation of the Michigan Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act. That law was enacted in 1976 to protect citizens in Michigan from illegal discrimination. The lawsuit seeks monetary damages for Mr. Williams, but it goes further by asking for, quote, 
declaratory and injunctive relief to prevent similar unconstitutional arrests in the future, unquote. In other words, that means policy changes to stop the abuse of facial recognition technology. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we want to ensure that what happened to Mr. Williams does not happen to anyone else ever again. It's 2021. Are we okay as a society with using a racially biased technology that we know will cause black people to be falsely arrested and imprisoned? I strongly believe that we cannot stand by and let this happen. And there is currently federal and state legislation proposing bans on dangerous technology. Uh, And we believe it is a step in the right direction until we vet the technology and ensure that our civil liberties are safeguarded. It should not be used by the government. The lawsuit goes into detail to explain how racial bias is embedded into the facial recognition system. For one thing, digital cameras often fail to provide the degree of color contrast that the algorithm needs to produce and match face prints from photos of darker-skinned faces. On top of that, as the lawsuit states, quote, the algorithm is trained on racially skewed data, meaning that most algorithms were built by analyzing a data set consisting primarily of white male faces. For instance, one prominent training data set consisted of 83.5% white individuals. Because facial recognition algorithms are trained primarily on white faces, they perform poorly in identifying people of color. So what does this mean moving forward amid the growing use by law enforcement of facial recognition technology to identify suspects? I think we should be scared as a society if this expansion continues. Uh, Despite all the known flaws and racial biases of these tools, how can we stand by and allow law enforcement to continue using such oppressive technology? Uh, The problem with facial recognition technology is that existing inequality is being automated. It allows law enforcement to hide behind the false promise of objectivity and accuracy that is technology when it is, in fact, automated oppression and oppression of people of color. And the problem also goes beyond reinforcing inequality. Our privacy rights and freedom of expression are also at risk here. Uh, The technology is dangerous when it doesn't work and dangerous when it does. Our civil liberties are much too important to relegate to such a faulty and dangerous technology. Deborah Wan, student attorney at the University of Michigan's Civil Rights Litigation Initiative. To find out more about the lawsuit, visit aclumich.org. That's A-C-L-U-M-I-C-H dot org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. U.S. troops will be withdrawn from Afghanistan by September 11th this year, President Biden announced last week. The symbolic move offers a sense of finality for war-weary Americans, but is this truly a reprieve from conflict? Some worry the pressure to continue business as usual in America's longest war 
is too great to overcome. Reporter Chris Banker Drowns has that story. Twenty years after the U.S. war on terror kicked off, U.S. troops are finally, formally, leaving Afghanistan. But the situation on the ground is complex, and political pressures, both foreign and domestic, may mean continued U.S. activity in the country. Lauren Woods is director of the Security Assistance Monitor at the Center for International Policy and wrote a piece for the American Prospect titled From Endless War to Endless Operations. She warns that Afghan security forces, quote, are not financially or technically capable of providing security on their own, end quote. Why is that? It's a really important question and one we've been asking ourselves, and it's a bit confounding when you think about it, how after 20 years and, you know, every resource available, um, something like $90 billion in U.S. security assistance um, are the Afghan security forces uh, not capable and not fully independent, um, you know, to, to hold the country. And I think, you know, there are so many answers to this question. Um, but but one of the main ones that we really honed on in, in our research is this idea that equipping security forces and training them fully always fell as a back burner issue when other priorities came up, whether it was war fighting, whether it was political exigencies at home, um, you know, the long term training and advising always seemed to kind of fall away when there was a shorter term need. Um, and that was something we unfortunately saw again and again, and it's really costing us and the Afghans, unfortunately. So President Biden's announcement clearly has drawn criticism from a lot of different groups, both in the United States and across the mm -hmm. globe. And I, I'm wondering, do we have a sense yet of particularly how the Taliban might respond? We don't. And it's a big question. I mean, the the agreement under President Trump was that, of course, U.S. troops and all personnel, including contractors, would withdraw by May 1. And that was the agreement that the Taliban made. And that was what uh, led them to um, decide to cease attacks on U.S. troops, although not on Afghans. It's not clear yet how they'll respond. Um, and I think that that's something that, you know, everyone is holding their breath on to, to see. And I know that Russia has also criticized the move. Are there ways in which other stakeholders in this, in this process could uh, stymie the withdrawal uh, or, or otherwise present political complications? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have we've we've seen uh, regional players present difficulties throughout this entire enterprise, um, particularly, you know, from Pakistan, from Russia, from many other players who have, um, you know, in many ways been supporters of the Taliban, which uh, has been perhaps in their short term interests in their views, although certainly not in anyone's long term interests. Um, and so I do I I do believe that, you know, regional players will continue to present challenges. I mean, there are many players who have not supported a fully independent and capable Afghan government, and, and I don't expect that to change immediately either. I don't think there's a clear picture yet of what exactly a post-withdrawal U.S. presence in Afghanistan might look like, but I think it is clear that there will be some sort of U.S. presence in Afghanistan or, or military mm -hmm. activity in the country. Can you walk our listeners through the various military options that the U.S. might employ uh, that don't require boots on the ground? 
Sure. So just for background, um, under, under uh, President Biden's announcement, U.S. troops will go to zero on September 11th of this year. Um, but that doesn't say anything about other potential players. Um, you know, one thing we're hearing about is what does that mean about um, intelligence personnel? They're not really saying anything publicly about that. Um, and what does that mean about contractors? Um, we really haven't heard anything about that either. And so those are really um, up in the air. We do know when we look at security forces on the Afghan side, they are not capable yet of operating on their own without support. So, you know, there is a likelihood that we could see contractors uh, playing a role with um, helping with vehicle uh, maintenance and equipment and supply chains and some of these logistical things that are part of operating a security force. Um, that is a, you know, perhaps U.S. presence, but, but does not count as uh, a military footprint. Um, on the intelligence side, we're hearing even less, um, but drones, for example, have been used, uh, you know, in Afghanistan for quite a while as they are in other countries. And that's something that we're continuing to watch and is very troubling. Um, you know, there's a real risk that we, we pull out um, as far as troops, we continue some kind of operations and the world attention kind of goes away from Afghanistan and people aren't watching any longer. Um, and, you know, that's when these things like a, a contracting presence or, um, you know, drones or other military operations without the name can become really problematic because um, this goes on and no one's paying attention. Um, you know, how often do we hear about uh, drone strikes in Somalia or Niger or Pakistan? It's not something that for whatever reason uh, gets lead reporting. And, you know, there is a risk of something like that happening in Afghanistan. To dig into this problem, you mentioned drone strikes and the civilian casualties that, that come from these inevitably. And, you know, anti-war folks for decades have talked about the threat of blowback from U.S. military operations, whether they're boots on the grounds or, or drone strikes. And, and I wonder if there is a need to support Afghan security forces, how can the U.S. optimize that support while, while mitigating this threat of blowback? Yeah, it's, it's such a good question. And, you know, I, I think that we should do what we should have done from the beginning on the U.S. side, which is to really think hard about reducing dependencies and making a really independent um, security force. That does not mean, um, you know, operating drone strikes all over the place and, and, you know, stepping in and militarizing further the conflict. I think it means um, providing smart training and capabilities and um, weapons that, you know, can be used without U.S. support. Um, and obviously integrating, you know, the concepts that we want to integrate into training like human rights and rule of law and, and all of these things that should be part of any security force training. You know, I think that building up that independence and really planning for a true exit rather than perpetuating these dependencies is key to actually getting out. Um, and so far, we just haven't seen that happening uh, to the extent that it should. Those are the last of my prepared questions. Do you have any closing thoughts? I would just add that one of the other things that we have been, you know, looking at and considering in the security assistance enterprise and all of the things that have gone into building out the Afghan security forces is that still within the U.S. government, 
we don't have a truly cohesive, coherent approach to this. It's one of these things that we've been figuring out as we go along and uh, you know, throughout the enterprise in Afghanistan. And so as a result, um, you know, there, this is something that SIGAR or the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction has done a lot of good work on. And, and they have found that there has been no one body within the US government that truly owns um, or manages security assistance. And I think that's part of the reason why it's been so difficult to track and measure progress. It's because no one's really responsible for the result. And so uh, as a result, I think that we need to do more within the US government to manage that process and, and make sure that we're accountable you know, to have a, a better result in the event that um, you know, we engage in this kind of enterprise again. That's Lauren Woods, director of the Security Assistance Monitor at the Center for International Policy. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Grounds. A wave of open, self-described jubilation swept over many black activists on Capitol Hill last week. First, the House Oversight Committee sent H.R. 51, the Washington, D.C. Admission Act, to the House floor for a vote, where it is sure to pass. And then, just hours later, after 30 years of reintroducing H.R. 40, the House Judiciary Committee finally sent a bill to the House floor to establish a commission to study the idea of paying reparations payments to black people for their free labor during slavery and for racial discrimination since. But not so fast. Dr. William Darity, an economist and professor at Duke University, who supports the idea of reparations payments to black descendants of slaves, feels the legislation currently before the House is badly flawed. Well, it's, it's not the same bill that was produced in 1989. It's been revised and uh, possibly revised for the worse. For the worse? So, yes, for the worse. Yes. So I, I am not so afraid. What's wrong with the, the new legislation? Uh, a lot of the things that were wrong with the old legislation, but then there are some additional problems. So, so one of the central problems is that um, there's no directives that are given to the commission about the content of the reparations plan that they bring forward to Congress. And uh, I think that's extremely dangerous. Um, because leaving the legislation completely open-ended leaves us with no sense of what the quality is of the report that will be given or what will be proposed. Um, I could imagine any number of uh, policies that are brought forward that are going to be uh, extremely inadequate. Um, You know, it's possible that the commission may ultimately recommend that uh, there be a, a more elaborate apology made to black Americans, or the commission could 
conclude that it should replicate the type of housing voucher plan that was introduced in Evanston, Illinois, and and call that reparations and call it a day. So uh, I think very specifically, the the legislation for the commission should direct the commission to first identify black American descendants of U.S. slavery as the recipients. Second, commit the commission to generating a proposal that would eliminate the racial wealth gap in the United States, which would require an expenditure of at least $11 trillion. And third, uh, commit the commission to designing a, a, a proposal for Congress that would uh, prioritize direct payments to the eligible recipients. And to the extent that the law doesn't do any of those three things and never has, it's been inadequate. But there are a couple of other concerns, um, and some of these are, are somewhat subtle. Uh, but one of them is the fact that the law specifies that the Federal Advisory Committee Act is not applicable to this commission. Okay, so uh, in the Federal Advisory Committee Act uh, is designed to compel the committees uh, to have open meetings, to have charterings, to have public involvement, and uh, and public reporting. And uh, so it's interesting that essentially the the law as currently designed provides the committee with the option of doing everything behind closed doors. I think that that's really, really problematic. Um, and then uh, the other thing is, uh, which has been a longstanding concern, is that the commissioners are guaranteed substantial pay from the, from the law uh, up to the equivalent of level four of the executive schedule. And that would amount to up to approximately $172,000. And I, I've always felt that this is a, an obligation and a mission that is so sacred that the commissioner should not be paid uh, salaries for, uh, for conducting this service for the nation. Uh, they certainly should have their, their expenses met. Uh, any expenses that they incur in the process of serving on the commission, but they should not be paid to serve on the commission. And so uh, that's that's another major concern of mine. I, I, I think people are enthusiastic about this because it represents us what seems to be a step forward in terms of the reparations movement. But I think very few people have actually read the bill. It seems as though people are delirious about and you suggested that closing the racial get wealth gap is an important component that needs to be addressed. But people are, seem to be delirious about inclusion in the society as opposed to really l looking at what, when the reparations question came up, it was out of anger and a sense of rejection that black Americans felt from the society. And so now this is like, oh, now we're going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya and get a check. Well, I'll tell you, if, if the check was approximately $280,000 per black American, that's a substantially greater uh, 
that that has a substantially greater impact than singing Kumbaya. And and in our book, From Here to Equality, we say that the Kumbaya moment requires not only the compensatory act or the act of redress, but it also requires eliminating all of the ongoing harms and damages that, uh, that black Americans are confronted with. So we say that, you know, after redress has been executed, uh, you know, black Americans will make no more further claims on the U.S. government that are specific to our community unless there are ongoing atrocities or there's uh, the introduction of a new set of atrocities. Uh, so, uh, so we don't reach Kumbaya just by receiving a monetary compensation. We also get to the Kumbaya moment by eliminating all the array of harms, including anti-black police violence in the United States that, that we're subjected to. Does this... But that's separate from reparation. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Does this measure, does this concern fall into the category of, well, we can fix it later, we can make it better, but let's just take this step forward, as many people consider this, and who those people consider your complaints as an example of good becoming the enemy of perfect. So this is not good. This is not a good piece of legislation. So, you know, if anything, it's the bad being the enemy of the perfect. And it's the bad being the enemy of the good. So, um, so no, I, I, I don't accept that, that complaint. Um, I, I mean, the question I'm asking people to do is to read the law and then ev- envision the type of commission that's going to be generated as a consequence of that law. Um, and, and I'm concerned that the type of commission that I personally envision as a consequence of, of H.R. 40 is not one that's going to accomplish uh, the goals that the black community merits. Thank you very much for your insight. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for talking to me, as always. Dr. William Darity is an economist and professor at Duke University. Results in an historic union vote were released earlier this month, and they don't look too good for organized labor. Workers at an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, voted against forming a union roughly 38% to 62%. Activists have accused the company of intimidation, and the union plans to file charges with the National Labor Relations Board, but What's next for the workers themselves? Reporter Chris Banker-Drowns has more. In a typical union election, a majority of workers must vote for the union for it to have exclusive bargaining authority in the workplace. Without a majority vote, a company is under no legal obligation to bargain with workers collectively. But some scholars and activists want to reimagine what it means to organize on the job 
suggesting what's called a minority union. In other words, a union with less than a majority of workers. Even without the ability to bargain collectively for everybody, a minority union has the ability to aggregate, if you will, members that want uh, to be part of, uh, of a union and that want union representation. That's Susan Sherman, distinguished professor and former dean at the Rutgers School of Management and Labor Relations. This minority union strategy is rare, but has been used before when a union election falls short of winning a majority. Take the example of the 2014 auto workers election in Chattanooga, Tennessee. What happened was after the OAW lost the election and lost it narrowly and then lost it because there was so much pressure from the conservative political apparatus in Tennessee, the union then met with the company and, and they created a minority union. And then the, together they set up a works council. That works council, with representation from workers and the company, helped set standards at the auto plant. Volkswagen, given its familiarity with works councils in Europe, may be more amenable to such an arrangement than more stringently anti-union companies like Amazon. And without a willing management, bargaining through a minority union could prove difficult. Existing labor law suggests that employers are only legally obligated to bargain with majority unions. It's unclear in the private sector whether such a union has, in fact, legal collective bargaining rights. That has frankly not been tested. And I'm hoping that it will be tested under the Biden administration when the labor board is hopefully uh, reconstituted slightly so that it's less tilted against unions. That process of testing minority union bargaining authority could start with a labor board ruling, which would then likely be appealed to the courts. But even without this legal guarantee of bargaining authority, minority unions have some teeth. Uh, Some of them have demonstrated quite clearly that they can gain benefits for uh, members and, 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 and frankly, for uh, non-members by using the concerted activity clause of the National Labor Relations Act, which allows workers, as long as there's two of you or more, to engage in concerted activity to improve the terms and conditions of your work. This concerted activity protection is a core right for workers, and serves as a buffer against the kind of anti-union campaign Amazon ran at its Bessemer plant. The process is so heavily tilted in favor of the employer. The Amazon campaign that we just witnessed is a good example. The employer is allowed to hold captive audience meetings. The employer can and does, and Amazon did, fire employees that are active in the campaign. This is an unfair labor practice. Susan Sherman says this firing of worker activists is just the cost of doing business for Amazon and should be made more costly through union-friendly legislation, a step that would only make minority unions more functional. The law, the PRO Act, would deal with that by increasing the penalties on employers who fire people for union activity. I'm not optimistic about that law being passed under the current structure of the Congress. Without stricter protections through the PRO Act, 
and without the due process afforded by a union contract, minority unions do face difficult prospects. That includes a free rider problem, where workers who don't pay union dues benefit from the standards set by a minority union or works council. But organizing in the workplace has always been difficult, and Susan Sherman says we need to shift our approach. We can continue forever running campaigns where we lose because the deck is stacked so heavily against us. Or we can go in and set up uh, an organization and start acting like a union. And let, let's do, you know, if we get majority status, then the free rider problem goes away. They, they have to join and pay dues. And if it's a right to work state, we have that problem now anyway. So as always, organizing is the answer. The loss in Bessemer just means new organizing strategies are needed. There's this old expression that says, if you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. We've been trying to do the old way of organizing since the 80s, and we're at 6.3% density in the private sector. Um, we got to do something different. There are lots of things that we should do differently, but one of them is 700 people at Amazon Bessemer uh, voted for the union. That's a nice nucleus for a minority union. That's what we ought to do. That's Susan Sherman, distinguished professor and former dean at the Rutgers School of Management and Labor Relations. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Last Tuesday... Two families linked by horrifying police violence that did not have to happen joined together in a press conference. Outside the Hennepin County Government Center in Minneapolis, family members of George Floyd and Dante Wright shared words of comfort, grief, and outrage. Today our last word goes to Brandon Williams, nephew of George Floyd and among those who spoke at that press conference. I don't really have the words, but I do want to send my condolences to the family. Um, I can't say I know how you feel, but we've been in a similar situation. I know that you need a lot of love, support, and prayer. And any way that our family can stand with you guys and be there, we're here. Um, and to the world, you know, I just simply say, damn, again. And when I say damn again, I mean another black man or woman killed at the hands of the police using excessive force. If you look around, we're standing outside the courtroom, and my family is right here, right now, in the middle of the Derrick Chauvin trial for murdering my uncle George Floyd. In snow and freezing weather conditions, we came to stand with this family. Mm-hmm. And for what exact reason? A so-called mistaken, a so-called mistake? A handgun for a taser? It's unacceptable. You know, when is enough enough? Amen. Can you blame Dante for being terrified Amen. as a black man in the custody of police? No. Amen. When you just watched here in Minneapolis, George Floyd murdered right. at the hands of the very same police right. who was unarmed? Wow. Let's take a second to think about that. At some point, we need change. At some point, we need better policing. At some point, we need 
officers to be held accountable, Amen. charged, Amen. and convicted. Amen. Just because you are the law don't mean that you're above the law. That's all I got. Brandon Williams, nephew of George Floyd, speaking at a joint news conference with the families of George Floyd and Dante Wright last Tuesday. And that's our show for today. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banker Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Muhammad. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash WPFWMMQB. Please stay safe, keep your social distance, mask up, and thank you for listening, and thanks for contributing to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York. Mm-hmm.